All right. Good morning, everyone. Yeah. So this is cool. Bad news is I did something to my leg. Good news is I get to use a stool. So I'm, I'm kind of excited about that. No more cage fighting for the pastor, I guess. I don't know. Jeez. Seemed like a good idea at the time. Um, no, in all seriousness, I was just doing a little morning cardio in the morning. I do six days a week to try to wake up, get the blood going, oxygen going so I can think. And uh, all of a sudden, felt pop in my left calf. Um, so, and uh, I knew what I was teaching on today, and I just felt like I needed the time to spend in God's Word, so I put off urgent care, and I'm a man. Uh, so between those two things, I put that off. I haven't done that yet, so I'll, I'll do that today. I'll go to urgent care and see what they say. Um, so I think it's either the soleus or the gastrocnemius, if I'm saying that correctly. Um, and then there's three grades of strains. I think it's a two. I don't think it's a three where I would need uh, surgery, hopefully. So, um, and I'm going to kind of use that as an analogy uh, in, in today's uh, message again, because I think, um, you know, when, I, when it comes to physical illness or whatever, I know there's, there's a pretty general marked difference between how men and women handle it. Have, have you noticed that? Um, this is not just my experience. I've actually done studies on this. This is actually one reason um, studies say that women live longer than men because the average life expectancy of a woman, I don't know, around the world, but in America is at least several years more than men. And one of the reasons is that women are more likely to go to the doctor uh, than men. That's actually like one of the things. And I think... Um, that's definitely true because my wife, um, you know, she'll always want to go to the doctor for things and then I never want to go to the doctor for things. And so between the two of us, you know, uh, we basically do what she wants. Um, so, but I kind of get it. I was thinking about it, especially in light of today's message on Ephesians 2. Um, there is a bliss in ignorance, right? It's where that statement comes from. Ignorance is bliss. It's like you know something might be bad, but you don't really want to know how bad it is. Right? Like, I know something's wrong. I felt a pop. You're not supposed to feel a pop in your calf muscle, right? Um, so I know something's wrong. Now what do I do about it? Okay, well, something's wrong, but I'm just going to keep, I'll just hobble around, or I'll try to just go through it, or um, I'll just take care of it on my own. That's, that's kind of how I think as a guy. And I was thinking about it, I think this is what a lot of people do with their spiritual life. You know, it's not that they don't sense something's wrong. It's that they, they don't really want to know what the problem is. They're, they're scared to hear it. It's why a lot of people don't want to go to church. It's not that they don't know that something's wrong. It's actually that they do. And they don't want to go because I'm actually afraid you're just going to highlight it. And by the way, I totally get it. You know, like if I forgot that, because I did, I did know that growing up because I didn't want to go to church as a teenager. My parents would make me and I would like purposely try not to listen, um, you know, and, and stuff like that. So I, I do remember that. But then I think if you've been a Christian for a long time, you kind of forget that. You forget what it was like when you didn't want to come to church, when you didn't want to hear the gospel, you didn't want to hear about Jesus, uh, hearing about sin and, and what you're doing. You, just, you didn't want to hear about that at all. Um, and just with this physical injury, it, it really reminded me, like not only did it remind me, but it made me sympathetic um, in a sense, just humanly speaking. Like, of course, I, I get the idea that if you know something's wrong, you just want to enjoy the bliss of not knowing what it is. 
You know what I mean? Like you, you know you're sick and you think, oh, it might be cancer, but, but if I don't know, then I don't have to freak out because right? I don't know. But again, it's like, but look, if you want to be healed or you want to treat it or if there's any chance that you could be saved, your limb could be saved, your organ could be saved, you need to know now, not, not later, right? So I, I totally get it. I think when it comes to spiritual things, a lot of people are like that. They know something's wrong, but they don't want to know what. They, they want to enjoy the bliss that comes from not having the great physician diagnose what's wrong with them. And I think that's exactly what we see this morning in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And so I want to unpack this diagnosis of the human condition. I want to unpack God's solution as the great physician of the human soul. And I want to show forth the new life that God gives you to those who have been healed by the great physician. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Ephesians 2. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 10 this morning. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. We'll have the passage up on the screen as well. And please follow along with me as we read God's Word. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the Spirit, who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just come before You this morning as the great physician. I thank You that You are willing to see us. I thank You that we don't have to go into some sort of spiritual waiting room and wait 20 years to be seen by You. It's not a program for the wealthy that only those that are rich are able to be seen by the great physician or those with insurance, or anything else, Lord. Access to the great physician is granted to all who will come. And you will examine us, and you will diagnose us, and you will say the hard things that need to be said, not because you hate us, not because you want to wreck our lives, not because you want to make things hard for us, but because you love us. And because you want to cure us. You want to heal us. You want to give us new life. 
And so I just pray for the grace that's needed to hear the diagnosis, Lord, that we wouldn't in fear or in anger run away in our minds, which we can do even while seated. We can begin setting our minds on other things. We can begin objecting to things before they've even been spoken because we just don't want to hear what the great physician has to say about our condition. So I pray for grace to hear what you have to say this morning. Lord, I just pray for anyone here who has not been treated by the great physician. Lord, I pray they would experience his healing touch. For those of us that we've been diagnosed and we've received it, but Lord, perhaps we've forgotten what we've been saved from. Perhaps we've grown in pride rather than humility. And we don't even recognize it, but that's what we do. We look down on people who aren't quite like us. I pray you'd reveal that, that sin of pride in us this morning who believe that we might grow in the humility of Christ who saved us. And I pray that you would send us forth, Lord, with a renewed vision and passion for what the rest of our lives are about. And I pray this all for the glory of Christ's name. Amen. All right, so Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Honestly, I'll say it right now. I think this is a section of Scripture, and I mean all 10 verses, that you should commit to memory. Really, there's, there's not a, a ton, I would say, oh, you have to commit to memory. Probably most places like a verse here and a verse there and kind of by itself. Um, but I would honestly say this whole section, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, is worth memorizing. Um, a lot of you probably have uh, 8 and 9 memorized. Um, but I would highly recommend the whole thing. And here's why. You basically get the entire gospel in 10 verses. You could even say you actually get the first three chapters of the great book of Romans all in these 10 verses. Take a look at these 10 verses later and go back and read Romans chapters 1 through 3 and you'll actually see Paul basically sums up all the major points he makes in those first chapters. It really gives you the gospel. If I had one opportunity um, to share a passage of Scripture with somebody who wasn't a Christian or didn't know what Christianity was, um, <laughs> to be honest with you, or even to speak to a group of Christians, and it was my only chance to speak to them, I would probably pick this very section in front of us this morning because I think it tells us not just secondary things about Christianity that are true, certain moral principles and commands, hey, you know, if you follow Jesus, you really ought to do this, and if you follow Jesus, you really ought not to do that. That stuff's important, but that's, that's after the fact. It's after you come to the gospel. So what I think we see in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, is the gospel. You get to know what the gospel is, and the gospel is everything. It's the heartbeat of Christianity. I've shared this before. If you take the gospel out of Christianity, you don't have Christianity, you have a dead religion, is actually what you have. You have a dead religion. It might have the form of religion, but you've taken the heart out, like taking the heart out of a human body. You have a human body still, but it's not alive, it's, it's dead. This is the heartbeat of what Christianity is. It is the gospel. And I'm calling this morning's message Amazing Grace because that's really what it is. We know that song. We know that great hymn. Even people who don't go to church know the hymn Amazing Grace. Well, what is grace? What's so amazing about it? Paul is going to unpack that for us here, and he does so in three sections. The first section is going to be verses 1 through 3, and I'm calling that section, We All Come Into This World equally dead in sin. 
Look again with me at verses 1 through 3. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. So, there is so much here, it's, it's crazy. I'm going to try to not skip over anything major, but I can't spend too much time on any one thing. There's just so much to go through. Um, first of all, he says he made you alive, which implies what? You were dead, right? You weren't alive at some point. You were dead. Well, what do you mean dead? You obviously weren't dead physically or you couldn't hear Paul saying this. So what does he mean? And he means dead relationally. In the story of the prodigal son, which is another famous story that even many non-Christians are familiar with, um, there's the story of the prodigal son, the son who wants everything his father has, curses him, says, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me your inheritance now. That's essentially what he's saying to his dad when he says, I want your inheritance while you're alive. Horrible thing to say to your parent. The dad gives him everything. The son runs off, ruins his life, blows his inheritance, and comes back. And the dad throws a feast, because this is a picture of amazing grace. It's the gospel. You get in the prodigal son the story of God's heart towards sinful humanity. And he throws the festival and slaughters the fatted calf. And then the older brother is, is ticked. He's angry because he's like, I know what's going on. Not, a, not only does that little punk not deserve to have this feast, he's worried, are you going to divide up my inheritance now? Am I actually going to get even less because he's back? Because he blew it all. And here's something that the father says. He says, my son who was dead is now alive. He wasn't dead. He was alive. What do you mean? What was, he was dead relationally. And that's what Paul means here when he says that you were dead. You were dead relationally. Sometimes people use that, that term if, if trust has been violated. And not in a minor way. I mean ultimately, right? Just violated. The person might say, you're dead to me. They don't mean the person's physically dead. They mean the relationship is dead. There is no life in it. And that's the condition, Paul says, of all of humanity. Everyone was dead. So if we're in the text, so Paul's speaking to the Ephesians, right? He's talking to the church of Ephesus. We believe from the things that Paul says throughout the letter, it's predominantly Gentile, non-Jewish, although there were probably Jews in the congregation, but it's predominantly Gentile. So when he's saying it, um, he's speaking mostly to a non-Jewish audience. He's saying, you are all dead. So you might think, well, maybe that's just a Jewish way of looking down on Gentiles, that they're the ones that are dead. But then Paul moves right in to use a first-person plural, which we all once walked. So he's saying not only did you non-Jews, Gentiles, did you live dead in the world, but he's saying even we, Jews, were dead at one time to God relationally. So this is a powerful statement. It's talking about the condition of human beings by nature. And I want you to skip to the end of verse 3 and look at this because this is so countercultural and very important. He says, and were by nature children of wrath. Now we don't have what might be called a full-blown or full-developed doctrine of original sin that we get with Augustine in the 5th century, but you have the essential pieces of it. 
What Paul is saying is when you come into this world, you are not born fine. You are not born good. And that's a very countercultural thing to say. And I find personally, like when I'm interacting with people who, who aren't Christians and they don't like Christianity and they don't like, uh, you know, they don't like Christian, I mean, sexual morality is like one of the big ones. They're like, I don't like Christian sexual ethics. I, I don't like this and I don't like that. And then sometimes Christians, I've done this, make the mistake of arguing at that level. But what you don't do is dig down and say, well, what do you believe about human beings? Because look, if I don't ever address the fact that you actually believe human beings are born basically good, and if you believe human beings are born basically good, then what you do by nature you don't see as wrong, you see as good. Now, most people aren't that philosophical, but they'll say this very thing like this. I've always felt this way since I can remember, therefore me doing it is right. What's implicit in that space? If I was always this way, that ends the argument for them. That's because they've actually presupposed something that's never been proven. Actually, I think it can be disproven even apart from the Bible. And that is that children are not basically good. Like, I love children. I would say relatively I have good kids. Relatively, big R, relatively. But when I see these kids, it's not like I see all evil in them. I'm not saying that. But... No one had to teach my kids how to lie. They knew how to do it. I mean, it's amazing, right? I mean, the older siblings might teach the younger ones, that kind of thing. But your first kid, right? There was no other kid in the house when you had your first kid. And you did not sit them down with like, you know, lying baby Einstein or lying Elmo. Hey, we're going to watch lying Elmo today. No, mom, I didn't steal that cookie. Now, honey, make sure you lie. Don't you dare tell me the truth too often. Like, no one teaches their kid to lie, and yet they know how to do it. To be selfish is essentially part of what it means to be a kid. I mean, I have some kids, and, and again, they vary. They vary. Some are more sharing than others. But most kids are, are inherently selfish. They want what someone else has. They don't care if it's not fair for somebody else. They'll say that's not fair when it benefits them, but they very rarely will say that on behalf of someone else when it costs them. You can see this in children. So the idea that we are basically good by nature, I would say, is the fundamental belief of American society today. People believe you are basically good and therefore rules of the religious or irreligious variety, basically get in the way of obscuring what is otherwise our good nature. And that the only bad you see in society is simply due to authority structures that weren't quite what we would have hoped for. It's all their fault. Paul teaches the opposite. The Christian view of human beings is not compatible with that. And so for me, arguing about sexual ethics in the public square, on, this is my opinion, okay? This is not, Scripture doesn't give me this exact way of going about it. I don't think that that's a fight we can have in the public square. Because we haven't had the preliminary arguments that undergird everything they believe when they say those things. So we have to go back to the famous debate in history. Uh, if you want to look at, I would say, Ephesians 2, Scripture. But if you want to look at great thinkers, Augustine on the one hand, who said human beings are not good. They come into this world inherently selfish. 
And then Jean-Jacques Rousseau of the Enlightenment who comes along and says, human beings are good. And you just have to take rules off of them and they'll do everything right. It's only the arbitrary rules of religion and society that make human beings bad. Paul says that's not true. We were by nature children of wrath. So we have to understand that the human condition, you're born dead to God relationally. That's your default condition. And this goes for all of us, myself included, who were born in a Christian home. You are not born born again in anyone's home. You can be born in the most wonderful, Christ-honoring, Christian family, and you can go to church every Sunday, that does not change Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. You're still dead in your sins. You're just religious about it. But you can still be dead in your sins. So that's what dead means. And he says in spe specifically, you are dead in what? Your trespasses and sins. There's a parallel in the Hebrew Bible, Isaiah 59.2. God says, but your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He will not hear. This is not merely a new Christian idea that sin is the heart of the problem. It is a very ancient idea that goes back to the very beginning. Sin is the ultimate problem. And it affects human beings, and we deal with the repercussions of that every day. But it's ultimately a problem facing God. We are dead to God relationally because of trespasses and sins. Now, some interpreters say that there's no real intended nuance between these two words, trespasses and sins. It's uh, a Pauline redundancy, uh, rhetorical. Sometimes Paul will re repeat things, and this is true. Paul does this sometimes. Like as a parent, there's many times I'll just say the same thing like 10 times, hoping that the accumulative force of the 10th time actually gets my kid to do what I meant the first time. We know what that's like. So Paul does do that. I don't think he's doing that here. I think the difference between these two words is subtle but important. Trespasses refers to that which we have done knowingly and intentionally. Sins, which comes from the word hamartia, right? Or uh, what's the, is it? Chata um, in Hebrew is to simply miss the mark, which probably includes the idea of sinning by accident. Okay, so we got two problems. You have done what's wrong knowingly in your life. You've done that which you ought not to have done that you knew not to do. So you've trespassed. That's conscious and willful. And yes, I'd say that's worse. But you're not off the hook if you simply sinned. That is, you were ignorant of God's law, but you did it anyway. I mean, even the way the law works in America, ignorance of the law is no excuse. If you drive down the freeway going 105 miles an hour and a police officer pulls you over and says, I'm pulling you over for speeding, and you say, oh, I didn't realize I was speeding, and, you, and the officer says, yes, you were. In fact, you were going 105. I can get you for exhibition of speed, by the way, and tow your car and arrest you on the spot. But I didn't know that the speed limit was 105. It won't matter. 
you've still broken the laws that are. And you are still responsible for that. So I know for some people, one reason they don't come to church and don't read the Bible is they're hoping that sins that I'm ignorant of, it, it, just, it won't be bad or God won't count that against me. But that's not true. You are still violating God's laws and He knows exactly what you're doing. It's not like a cop where maybe there's no cop on this road right now. God sees what we are doing all the time. So He knows all the things we've done wrong, even if we were ignorant of it. But He also knows our trespasses, that which we knew not to do, and we did it anyway. And Paul says that this basically summarizes human experience. This is the course of life you live. You are either A, violating God's laws throughout the course of your life in ignorance, and or B, you are also doing it willfully. And then he says this. He says, You once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and the power of the air, and conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh and of the mind, satisfying the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Um, so Paul wants to show us how bad the diagnosis is. And he says, basically, doing evil as far as God is concerned, right? Because this is God's standard, not yours. You can always find somebody worse than you and say, wow, I'm a good person by that standard, right? Like you can be the good kid in the family, but if you come from a mafia family, that might not be that good, right? You're like, eh, I didn't whack anybody today. Bada bing, you know? It's like, no, that's, you're still not good. You, you stole the cannoli. You still stole it, but you didn't whack that guy. Okay, well, you're, you're, you're still bad. You shouldn't be doing that. So it's God's standards, not ours. And we're so wrapped up in this that it's actually inescapable. So what religion, broadly speaking, does is it tries to offer human beings a way in which they can reform their own lives. That's the attraction. Pride can be involved. It's the idea of religion, but you build a stairway to God. I get to God through my good works, through changing my behavior, through offering enough sacrifices uh, for, from telling the truth more than I lie, uh, like the Egyptians believed why they would keep the heart. Um, actually intact is because they believe that the heart would be weighed uh, on, the, on the divine scales. And, and if your good works slightly outweighed your bad, then, then you would go to the good place. And if it, your bad slightly outweighed them, you go to the bad. That's how a lot of people think. But Paul is saying that you are so utterly trapped in what is evil that it's inescapable. And he says there's actually three different things working against you. He says, first of all, you walked according to the course of this world. And it's actually the word eon here, um, which refers to the age. So it talks about an age, not so much the world. Um, one of the ways we might understand Paul's idea of age is culture. You once lived according to the culture. Well, on one hand, well, that's a duh. Yeah, of course I lived according. You learned its language. You learned the language of the culture. You learned the, the laws of the culture. You learned what the culture valued, right? You, you go to a school. A kid learns at a school who maybe junior high, right? Those are formative years. Uh, yay, junior high. Um, but they, they go to junior high, and maybe they don't even know the word culture, but they learn very quickly about the culture. What do you need to do in order to fit in? What are the values of this culture? Oh, drinking, you know, at, at 12. Oh, that, that fits me into this culture. You know, messing around with, with guys. Oh, well, that, that gets me to fit in. Um, you know, beating up people. Oh, that makes me fit in, acting like I'm all tough. These are the values of the culture, and you learn to do them. 
And the thing that's so powerful about culture is even if you have a conscience, when everyone else is doing it, it can really have a powerful numbing effect on your, on your conscience, can't it? Like, you know, go try and do an evil thing by yourself when everyone's saying not to do it. And, and chances, you're, you're more likely not to do it, right? But if you surround yourself with all kinds of people who are all doing the very same thing, you are much more likely to believe that it's actually right. And you begin to shut down your conscience because of the culture you've placed yourself in. So Paul says, number one, you walked according to the eon, the course of this, this culture, its values. That's what you followed. So you have culture, which is not godly. It doesn't represent God's kingdom. It doesn't mean everything in it is wrong. By God's grace, there's some good left or everybody would just be killing each other in the streets. There's common grace left. But there's a lot going on there that is perfectly normal and everyone is, says is acceptable and maybe even good. And God says it is utterly opposed to who I am and what I want for your life. So you started that first. You walked according to the course of this age. Now there's a second problem. Let's say, well, I'm not a people pleaser. I don't really follow culture all that much. I'd still say it's inescapable. Okay, here's number two. You walked according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. This seems to be a reference to Satan and certainly demonic powers. Um, This idea of the air, and it is the word for air, the prince and the power of the air. If you look at what the Greeks and Romans believed at that time, they often used the word air to refer to the sphere in which the spirits operate. So that's what the air is, and it it makes sense because they believed they were real, but you couldn't see them. Like the air. We know the air is real, or you and I know we would all be dead. We'd have nothing to breathe, so we know there's air, but you can't see it. So they would use air as a metaphor for spiritual power. We know it's real because of the impact on our lives. The way that these unseen forces can energize human beings to go beyond even what is normal human evil. I was just watching um, this uh, Expedition Unknown program. It's a a great little program. My kids uh, love it. I think Daddy loves it more. It's like supposed to be like educational for them, but I totally dig it. Um, But they were trying to find these old Nazi war relics, things left over from um, the Third Reich, and they're they're digging through all these kinds of things. And and it just it it made me think again of of the kind of evil the Nazis perpetuated, right? And I would say, I can admit with the Bible that, you know, people apart from God, yeah, they're definitely selfish. They're self-centered. Even, and I know some very generally kind people, but, it, you know, it's still that you will see selfishness at moments. And you can even argue sometimes, again, if they do a nice deed, but they're not appreciated or think they get all upset. And you're like, well, what are you upset for? If it was truly self-giving and sacrificial, you wouldn't be upset that this person isn't thankful. So, you know, you kind of expected some gratitude in return. And so there's a little bit of deposit of selfishness going on there. But still, you kind of say to yourself, but, but people can't be that evil, right? Like just you wouldn't want to say the average person is capable of doing what the Nazis did. Like, I I don't want to believe that. But if you take the fact that people are born, according to Paul, dead in their trespasses and sins, so they're dead relationally to God, that a culture, if it starts going bad, can enable normal people to do worse things than they would do otherwise, and then add to that now actual evil spiritual powers that what they do is they 
it's not that they necessarily make people go against what they would otherwise do, but it seems that these, these evil spirits, what Satan does is he enables or energizes people to go beyond their normal limits. That we can't, this is why we can't blame the devil for everything, right? You know, just blame it and don't take responsibility. No, we're able to do evil on our own. But have you ever noticed there's just times where like just normal evil kind of happened and then it just went like above and beyond and you're like, where in the world did that come from? And you're looking at it and it's almost like you can't fathom that this is totally attributable to a human being or human beings. And if you have a materialistic worldview where you don't believe in God, you don't believe in angels, and you don't believe in demons, that's what you have to do. Is oh, well, they just didn't have the right, you know, this and that, or we just should have educated them better. That's kind of the worldview you're left with. But what Paul says is, look, that stuff might be worth looking into, but beyond that, there are spiritual powers that actually energize already fallen human beings who are already walking according to the course of this world and they're now energized by demonic powers to go above and beyond and do exceptional evil. And you do see it in life. And I think we do see it, for example, in the Holocaust. So that is also working against us. And then finally, so those are external powers. And then in verse 3, after talking about what's out there working against us, he talks about the enemy within each one of us. Among whom also we all conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind. So what Paul is saying is in addition to the fact that culture can enable you to do evil, in addition to the fact that there's evil spirits out there that can energize people to go above and beyond and do exceptional evil beyond what they would even naturally be capable of doing, in addition, we can't just go around blaming the devil and culture because the problem is actually in us. He says part of the problem is you've gone around fulfilling what you wanted to do. Because cut off from God, that is natural. You simply fulfill the desires of the flesh and of the mind. It's, it's interesting, again, from our perspective, when Paul says the flesh and the mind, you know, you can look at it as well. It's just the same thing. The flesh, um, that's your body. It, it could be talking about the sin nature and the mind. Uh, but again, one of the distinctions like the Greek philosophers made is they felt that they weren't Christian, but they were smart thinking people and if you read some of their writings they made a they posited a distinction between the body and the mind and the barbarian the the way the barbarian lived was they simply did what they wanted to do if you want to eat you eat if you want to have sex you have sex if you want to kill somebody you kill somebody and that's what they do kind of like an animal like that's what lions do right they go to the bathroom where they want to they kill what they want to they sleep when they want to they do whatever they want to do they act on their impulses like animals. But even the Greek philosophers who weren't Christian looked at that and said, that's not the way to live. There needs to be a higher kind of life. And for them, it, it, it wasn't God in the Christian sense, but it was the mind. That the mind could transcend the body. It could be different. And you could have values and beliefs, transcendent ideas that guide these desires that we have. And so the philosophers form kind of a pushback on, on some of the ideas, the ideas of the flesh. They would say, no, you shouldn't always do what you feel like doing. No, just because you feel like it doesn't mean that's necessarily good. Sometimes doing what you feel ends up being the worst thing that you could ever do. 
As a matter of fact, doing something you want to do now might end up literally tomorrow with something much worse. Uh, one of the things they would talk about, uh, even in dialogues, is, is, for example, drinking alcohol. They'll talk about, hey, we can drink heavily today and have an absolute great time. And we will. Let's not deny it. We'll have a great time. And then tomorrow, we will vomit and have a horrible headache. So doing what I want to do today can literally tomorrow be what I don't want to do. And the philosophers could actually, they could figure that out on their, on their own. So there's something to the idea of the mind, living for value, something that's beyond mere human impulse. And so I think that's, that's step one for our culture is simply saying, look, at the very, first I want to bring you to Christ, that's the solution, and there will always be central, essential problems till we get there. However, if we want to improve the road we're going down, because right now we're barbarians. We're living like a barbarian culture. We think whatever our bodies tell us to do must be obeyed. Our bodies are masters over our minds. That's like literally what TV and movies and everything are telling our kids. Do what your body feels like doing. Don't have any transcendent values that govern those decisions. So we need to get back to values and say, look, whether you're a Christian or not, even the, the Greek philosophers would say, that's a foolish way to live. You are not a mere lion or tiger or cheetah or, or you know, even a mastiff, for goodness sakes. You are a human being. You are not meant to simply follow your impulses. So let's get back to some values that transcend these human desires. We're not saying all human desires are wrong, but some of them are wrong, and some of them might not be wrong, but there can be inappropriate times and places for them. And how are you going to know? You need some idea, value, belief, religion, whatever you want to call it, to guide those decisions so that they are made properly. So the fleshing of the mind, so for Paul, he's appealing to not only just those that just do whatever they want to do, sort of the barbarian, but even the philosopher. Because he's saying salvation is not simply in your mind. It's not just getting new ideas or good ideas or becoming educated. That's, that's one of the things. Oh, the problem in our world is education. We just don't have enough education. I'm not against education. Although it begs the question, well, what kind of education are you giving people? If you educate people in evil things, Nazis educated people, for goodness sakes, guys. They did. They edu- it was part of their, it was like built in. We are going to educate people <laughs> about our worldview. That was not good. That was extremely bad. Okay? So salvation is not merely education or of the mind. It is ultimately something where the deadness of man facing God is dealt with. And that's the problem. And if Paul were to leave us here, if he didn't go on to verse 4, it would basically be, well, we might as well eat and drink for tomorrow we die. The whole world is just going to hell in a handbasket. The culture is bad. Devil's out there energizing people to do evil exceptionally beyond what normal evil human beings are able to do. Oh, and by the way, I have evil desires in me and I have no idea my left hand from my right, morally speaking. We're, we're just in serious trouble. And that is where we get to our next section, verses 4 through 9. And it begins with these two words, but God. So I'm calling this next section, we are only made alive in Christ. Paul says, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus 
that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So the great physician has diagnosed the human condition, and it's a human condition. It's not just men, it's not just women, it's not just this ethnicity or this one, it's not just 21st century or 1st century, it's all human beings. And the great physician, God, has diagnosed the human race in verses 1 through 3, and now he gives the only treatment, the only treatment that works for this condition of sin, and he gives it here. And notice it begins, but God, it is all about God. Christianity is, is different from, I'd say, every other religion in the world in this. It, it, it can have commonalities and certain rules and principles elsewhere, but here's where I believe it fundamentally differs from every other religion in the world. Christianity is not about what we do for God, but about what God has done for us. That's essentially what grace is. It's when we're in this condition, verses 1 through 3, this is our condition, as bad as it could be, and the one who intervenes is not you. Religion is about me pulling it together. I'm going to start going to this group. I'm going to start reading this book. I'm going to start um, you know, meditating. I'm going to start offering some sacrifices. I'm going to start doing this. And hopefully my good works. And That's you contributing to your salvation. That is not Christianity. That's not the Gospel. Any kind of religion that says you contribute in any way is not a Christian theology. It's not the Gospel. The gospel excludes any belief, any idea, any concept of earning God's favor. And that's why I, I spent so much time, as Paul did in verses 1 through 3, showing you what are you, dead in your trespasses and sins, swayed by the, the immorality of the culture, swayed by the prince of the power of the air, and living out the lusts of your flesh and of your mind. What are you going to give God exactly? What are you going to give to him? Everything we would have to give him is, is tainted and ruined. And we know from the Old Testament what kind of God we have. We don't have a God who's half evil, half good, like many of the gods in, in the history of religion, who are half good, half bad. We know from the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, God is all good. And he's, he's not just good, he's pure, he's holy, the Bible would say. That's why the laws were so strict about what could be offered to God how the priest would have to be perfectly clean and the people would have to be perfectly clean and the sacrifice would have to be perfectly clean. It had to be blameless, spotless, firstborn lamb. It had to be absolutely perfect or it was considered unacceptable to God. So what are you, verses 1 through 3, human being, going to give this God, the God of the Bible? The answer is nothing. Christianity, fortunately, is not about what we give to God. It is about what God gives to us. And Paul unpacks this here. He has ultimately given us His Son, Jesus Christ. It is about what God has done for us. He says, God who is rich in mercy, Plutos, he is, He's wealthy. Think of this. It's, he's, he's wealthy. He's wealthy in mercy. He's, he's got a storehouse full of mercy. And He's not an old miser. Right? You, you could be wealthy and be a miser. Oh, I have a lot. I don't share it. I don't give it. Uh, uh, uh. No, you have a God who is abundantly wealthy and he's a God who's he's looking to spend. He wants to give mercy out. He's looking for it. He's glad he has riches of mercy, not because he likes riches of mercy, because it becomes an opportunity to give it to you. 
He loves it. He just wants to give you this, this mercy, and he's rich in it. He's wealthy in mercy. And it says, because of his great love, once again, with which he loved us, it's this idea of abundance. It's who God is. Christianity says God is love. God is love. He's overflowing with love. And he is desiring to take this overflowing, abundant love and pour it out on us. Pour it out on who again? Those who pulled it together? Those who did right things? Those who were religious enough? Who stopped doing this and stopped it? No. On the verses 1-3 through three people who were dead in their trespasses and sins. It's in that moment when we were at our worst that Christ shows Himself at His best. That's when Christ meets us. It's only the devil that comes into people's lives and says, well, you can't have Jesus because you still do this. And you still do this. And oh, you, and you don't plan on, let's be honest, you don't even plan on giving that up, do you? That we beat ourselves up and say, I'm somehow excluded. But the whole point of what Paul said in so many ways in verses 1 through 3 is we are all equal, equally unworthy of salvation, and yet it's it's because of that very thing, God gives us that salvation. Because it actually shows who God is. Paul even uses that actual language in verse 7. He uses the Greek word hina. In order that, it's for this reason. The reason he does this great salvation to completely unworthy people is because it shows who he is. This is who God is. This is the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is a God looking for those who are beat up and on the side of the road, and he's looking to heal them. He's looking to take them in. That's who the God of the Bible is. So even when, verse 5, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, when we were in it, not after, made us alive together with Christ. Somehow we've been mysteriously joined to Christ. And he doesn't spell it out how, but I believe the rest of the New Testament makes clear this is part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. The Spirit unites us to Christ so that Paul can say things like, we are with Christ, we are in Christ, we are Somehow we're seated here, but we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Well, how is that possible? It's by the mysterious action of the Holy Spirit binding us to Jesus Christ. And he says we also sit together with Him so that in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Again, this short, concise statement, verses 8 and 9, it protects the integrity of the gospel. It's by grace you've been saved. It's by God's initiative, Him taking the first step, not you. I mean, we all know how that is. You get in a fight with somebody, um, especially like if you're married, and, and do you always like being the first one to apologize? You know, it's like, I, I, I know I don't. I try to get better about it, but I don't always like, because the truth is, it's like, I feel like, well, that's an admission that I'm wrong, and, or, and then you'll think I'm weak or something like that, and we go through all these kind of power play dynamics. Think of this. God is not wrong, nor is He ever wrong, and yet He is the one that steps forward to heal the relationship. That's amazing. You think about us sinners, it's like, even when we're wrong, we won't initiate like, how crazy is that? 
And I mean, and there's a logic behind it. I get it, but that's great. Especially when you look at God, who's done nothing wrong. He's done nothing but kindness. And when we're in the wrong, He steps forward to take the penalty for all the wrong that we've done on Himself, so that we can be right with Him. For by God's grace you've been saved through faith. Through what? It's simply through receiving and trusting in what God has done for you. Simply believing. It's you know people argue, well, it's faith to work, and if it's work, well, then it can't be by grace, blah, 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 blah. Look, faith to me is simply the ceasing to fight against God. It's not like the idea of, oh, I wasn't doing anything before. I was morally neutral. Paul already made clear there's no morally, spiritually neutral people in the world. No such thing as neutrality. We were all a part of the children of wrath by nature, Paul said. So when God is acting, we are actually fighting against Him. And at some point, what faith is, it's like we're barring the door of our hearts. And it's true, there might be seasons in life, especially if you stay away from church and you don't hear God's Word, it's like you're not having to push too hard on the door. You know, the door's shut because you don't want God coming in. But the door's, you know, you're not having to barricade it. But then there's seasons in life, maybe it's, you know, things are happening that aren't going right, relationship strains, things you loved and thought you would always have are gone, or you go to church and you're hearing the Word of God, suddenly you're like barring the door. You're like getting out chairs and, you know, putting up everything and just leaning into it and you're fighting. I would say faith is, it's dropping your hands. It's a ceasing, because the only kind of work Paul said you were capable of doing was fighting against God. So faith is a ceasing to work. It's not a work that excludes grace somehow. Faith is a ceasing to fight against God and just trust, okay, I'm yours. I believe you. If someone's a liar in this relationship, I, it's me. You know, I fought against you like you're the liar. God's the liar. God's the one that's not loving. God's the one doing this and doing that. Or God doesn't care. Whatever. It's like, no, I, I'm the problem. You were right. I was wrong. I drop my hands. I won't bar the door of my heart anymore. I cease to work. That's faith to me. That's what faith is. I, I would say that's not only biblically and theologically true, and I can show that, but I'd say it's experientially true. That's my story. I remember fighting against God. I literally remember fighting against God actively in my mind, with my decisions, with my life, doing whatever I had to do to not hear Him. Running away, like Jonah. That's why I love Jonah. I know you're not supposed to be a Jonah, but I've been a Jonah. So I, I get I get running away and going down and going down and going down and going down and going down. That's what the Hebrew says. And it's, that's, it's that life, running away from God. First it's Tarshish, then it's the ship, then it's down into the, the belly of the ship, and then it's in the belly of the sea. Down, 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 down. Running away from God. But God is the one who reaches out. And it's a ceasing to run. It's a ceasing to bar the door. And it says, it is not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Salvation is a gift. And I would say it's, it's hard for the church, and, and this is any Christian in any time in history, I think. I think it's always a temptation, because we do have rules, we have morals, we have moral values in the Bible. There's ma many imperatives. People don't realize there's, uh, it depends on how you count it, but it's possible there's more commands in the New Testament than the Old, if you look at imperatives. Um, at the very least, just to, to be generally sure i'll say there are many many commands we are told to do in the new testament many things 
None of them are we commanded to do before we receive the gift of salvation. For the Christian, salvation is not something we work towards, but rather we work from. And that is what Paul is going to show us in this closing verse. Section 3, I'm calling, We are saved unto the Lord's work in the Lord's world. He says in verse 10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Again, it's very easy in our lives, our church, and any Christian church, to look at the many things we ought to be and ought to do and think that those are the things that make me right with God. But the Gospel is you will never be right by anything you do. Ever. Not on the first day you believed. Not 50 years later. Not 100 years from now. We are always saved by this Gospel in Ephesians 2, 1-10. Every day of your life, you will live from this. This is where your life is. This is where the air that you breathe spiritually comes from. This is the Gospel. It is a gift every day. So when we beat ourselves, I wasn't a good Christian. Like some people will say that. It, again, you, I understand what they mean. It's probably not an accurate thing to say. Because in one sense, there's no such thing as a good Christian. You can't be a Christian unless Jesus is good on your behalf. Amen? I mean, you get that's, that's what the Gospel is. No one is good enough except Jesus and He was good on your behalf. And that's true every day the rest of your life. So we ask ourselves, well then what's the role of works, right? Because we know intuitively there's, there's a lot of things I'm supposed to do. And there's a lot of things I'm doing I'm not supposed to do. And does that mean I, I'm not loved? I'm not saved? I'm not a Christian? I'm not this? I'm, no, no, no. But what it means is you need to grow into those things. That's because that's a part of who you are now. God's given you a new identity. You were dead. Now you are alive. You were the prodigal. Now your home and the father is throwing a feast for you. And good works are not uh, the prodigal son. Now you come home and you clean your room or I'll put that fatted calf right back where it came from. He didn't say that. He didn't say that. He can't, it's an absolute celebration. He's like, son, I have work for you to do. That's a gift. That the father would even give the son any work to do after what the son did is a p complete gift from the father so good works for us are a gift the rest of our lives have meaning they have eternal significance whether you see it or not whether other people see it in you or not god sees it and knows it that we were created for good works as a gift that we should walk in it's been pointed out since i was a kid that the word workmanship comes from the Greek poema, which is where we get the English word poem. And that's true. It can be generically workmanship, but it can mean poem, song, or work of art. We are God's master craft. If you, want to, if you look out into the world, and I know all of us probably, right, enjoy creation. You enjoy going to Yosemite. You enjoy going to Yellowstone. You enjoy beautiful sunsets at the beach. You enjoy this, right? You don't have to be a Christian to enjoy it. But what God says is more beautiful than that is you. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are His work of art. Like I know they've, they've found recently some more Da Vinci sketches, and, some, and they're kind of faded, but, and it's just Him working it out, right? Like you can see all His angles and lines, and it's all like that. But then you go and you look at one of His masterpieces. 
And it's like the world out there that we love and people actually will practically worship, it's like that faded rough draft we found of Da Vinci. But then the, the Mona Lisa, that's what we are to God if we are in Christ. He sees you are his, his workmanship. You are his work of art. You are his poem. You are his song. What's interesting as well that stood out to me, I never saw this before, is a poem is actually singular. So it's not saying you're all a bunch of individual little pieces of, of art out there. It's we, the church, are God's masterpiece. So we're, we're all brush strokes in this greater painting of Christian history through which God wants to reveal his love for the world. And that's what we are together. And so you have a statement of, of about the church, a doctrine of the church here, that it's us together as the community of grace who believe by faith in what Jesus has done for us that we become this masterpiece, this Mona Lisa to the world. And these good works, therefore, he said, they were prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Again, we're not saved by works, but we are saved unto them. And that's not a legalistic, okay, God gave you a free pass because you were so messed up that day, but now he expects you to earn the rest of your ride. That's not true. That's not what verse 10 is about. Again, this is about a gift. A gift of meaning and purpose and partnership in what God is doing to set the world right. And we are secured in that partnership solely as a gift every day is a gift christians should live every day as a gift because it is the christian community should be the most humble community on the planet we often aren't but we should be because if you get salvation by grace through faith that's what it does that's the purpose actually paul said no boasting no one can go around with their nose up at the air at anyone else saying, well, I don't do this and I always do that. And if we're doing that, we're not just making a little mistake. We're actually pushing back against what the gospel is. So my prayer for us is that we will be the most humble community of Christians we can possibly be. That we won't look at anybody, non-Christian, new Christian, baby Christian, whoever, look down on anyone else for where they're at because if we've been touched by the grace of God, we will say, there go I, but by the grace of God. Because it's the grace of God that gave us life. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just can't thank you enough for what you have done for us. Lord, I, I'm overwhelmed that salvation is by grace, not by human works. And that faith itself is not a work, but a ceasing to work against you. Lord, I just pray if there's anyone here this morning who, having been diagnosed by the great physician, Lord, maybe in a sense I don't know how we could like what we hear. I think that's normal. Why would I want to hear that I'm completely lost and dead? Why would I want to hear that? Why would I want to hear I'm a horrible sinner and I've... I'm guilty for the things I didn't know, but they were wrong. And I'm also guilty of the things I knew that I did that were wrong. And there's actually evil powers out there. The culture is evil. And I have passions and desires I've always had. And I thought because they were always there as far back as I can remember, they therefore must be right. And I was just told all that's wrong. I don't know how anyone would want to hear that. 
But I believe if we want to be healed, we must hear that. And that rather than feeling condemned, we should rejoice that there's a cure. I mean, if we were diagnosed with the worst disease possible and, and in our minds we just we died and our hearts skipped a beat, but then immediately the doctor said, and we can cure it, what would we do? We would jump for joy. And that's what we've just seen here in Ephesians 2. We have a mortal disease and there is a cure. And I just thank you that that cure doesn't have to be bought. It is not for the wealthy. It is for all who will come to Jesus. So I just pray in this time we would just remember what this is all about. What following Jesus is about. What coming to church, hearing the Bible, praying, trying to do this, trying not to. Lord, help us to remember it's, this is all a gift. All is grace. Gratitude is the appropriate response to grace. And so I just pray in this time we would, like the Ephesians, be reminded of where we come from. We need to be reminded from time to time. But not to leave us in any place of condemnation or beat ourselves up or lower our self-esteem. But that so we can once again rejoice in the salvation of our souls, what you have done for us. And to help us remember how desperate the world is for this. They need it so bad, but they're they're like that person who has a disease and just doesn't want to go to the doctor hoping that ignorance will just be bliss a little longer. Help us to actually have love and compassion on people who are perishing. Help us to not be complacent where we can allow people to just die in their sins and say and do nothing. Help us to love them. Help us to want to share this free gift we've received with others. Thank you that not only are we justified by grace, but we're sanctified by grace. The only way we can keep growing is if we continue to remember that we're not earning it. And just letting you in, just let you in every day into our hearts to do whatever it is you want to do today. Lord Jesus, whatever you want today, come in and do what you want today. I pray we would each be able to say that from the bottom of our hearts. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.